right. Welcome to our experience in ASCP podcast. I'm Chad Wurz alongside my partner, Tom Hansel. And today we're going to do what we call Rage Against the Machine, which is a just a play on how we face the challenges that are facing our pharmacies out in the world today. So we're going to have a number of episodes on Rage Against the Machine, but today we're going to talk about pharmacy benefit managers, which seems to create the most rage across the pharmacy industry, at least today. And we're super pleased and excited to have Antonio Chacha here. He's the president of Axis 3 Advisors. Antonio, welcome. Hey, great to be with y'all today. Awesome. We have a good announcement to make. Antonio is going to keynote our annual meeting in October. So he's going to bring a, a lot of the, at least the latest on the PBM issues later this year at our annual meeting. So we're super excited about that. Thank you for that, Antonio. Why don't we just get started and why don't you give everybody a, a, a deep history of Antonio Chacha and your role in pharmacy? <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I was born and raised in a pharmacy household. My dad is a hospital pharmacist for about 40 years. Uh, my sister has been a Walmart pharmacist for almost a decade now. I wanted to be like my dad while I got to see him at the hospital. He also worked at an independent pharmacy on the side. And I always thought that what he did was was the coolest, uh, especially between the hours of you know 8 p.m. and 10 p.m. when you know friends, family members would call and say, "Hey, Tony, you know I guess I got this problem. I got prescribed this drug. I can't even pronounce. What do I do?" And I always thought that it was really cool, you know, how you know, he was essentially a, a walking encyclopedia on how medicines could make people better. And so I uh, started working as a pharmacy technician for a regional grocer up in the Cleveland, Ohio area. Did that for about three years and then went to Ohio State to become a pharmacist just like dad. Around organic chemistry time, I got really interested in other things and less interested <laughs> in organic chemistry. <laughs> so I, uh, I ended up moving out of pharmacy and uh, moving into journalism and political science. One of my, my, my second job out of college was working at the Ohio Pharmacists Association. My first job out of college had been in the association world. And at that point, while I was familiar with pharmacy, from a clinical perspective and certainly familiar with pharmacy from just a retail pharmacy perspective, I was introduced into the complicated world of drug pricing where pharmacists, in order to you know keep the lights on, need to be compensated products that they're dispensing and the services that they're rendering. And oftentimes seeing how sometimes the balance sheet didn't add up in the positive. And over time, we saw that it was a growing number of transactions where that was occurring. So, Chad, you know this as, as somebody who's you know running a, a national association, myself at the state level with, within Ohio, you know, associations are often the complaints department for their respective constituencies. Nah. Never get that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you hear from folks when things are bad, you know, it, when you don't hear from them, usually that means things are going well. And so you know, my role at the proverbial complaints department got more and more attention over time as PBMs consolidated more and more, meaning that they were getting increasing amounts of leverage against pharmacies and thus increasing their ability to underpay for medicines. We also saw that the call volume started increasing over things like audits, things like clawbacks and DIR fees. We saw more phone calls occurring because of patient steering or 
patients being forced to mail order or PBM-owned pharmacies. And it was a gradual thing, but really things hit a fever pitch in 2015 when you know pharmacists were getting massively underpaid in our Medicaid-managed care program. So you know, for pharmacies that were serving a disproportionately high amount of poor and underserved constituents of Ohio, you know, the reimbursements took a sharp downturn. Being in a government affairs role at the time, I went back to state officials to ask a very important question. You know, did I miss a budget cut? Am I about to get fired by Ernie Boyd, our, our executive <laughs> director in Ohio at, at the time? And they said, no, you know, we made no budget cuts. And in fact, we're spending more for medicines than we ever have. And so while I was not an expert on drug pricing at the time, those two things did not make any sense to me. How can providers see massive cuts for the products and services that they're offering to Medicaid beneficiaries on one end of a transaction, but on the other end of the transaction where the state is cutting the checks that ultimately pay for those goods and services, they're not seeing the benefits or savings from those cuts. And that set me off on a long journey to dig into the bowels of our convoluted and opaque prescription drug supply chain to help diagnose you know, where the money is going and where it's not going and ultimately help state officials at the time and now today working with plant sponsors and, and other, other payers in the marketplace to help them you know, diagnose where their drug benefits programs are going wrong. Anthony, this is Tom. I was looking at your website and, and found it to be very interesting, specifically 46 Brooklyn, that you and your partner Eric started. And, and what I found to be most interesting is this is really a personal issue uh, for you all. Can you expand a little bit on on when you guys founded this company, 46 Brooklyn, and, and why that meant more than just, you know, starting a company, if you will? Yeah, sure. So one of the things that we know in pharmacy is that pharmacists are very, you know, they're, they're a little bit hesitant to show how name your PBM is impacting their business because a lot of these, you know, reimbursements are, are considered proprietary by the PBMs. And so we struggled at the time to say, okay, if pharmacies are getting paid less, but the state is getting charged more, how can we tell a story to demonstrate how this is happening? especially when most people within state government don't understand the flow of dollars and certainly aren't necessarily, at least in aggregate, fully understanding of the, of the importance of protecting pharmacy access. So at the time, there was a gentleman by the name of Eric Packman who was running a small chain pharmacies in the state of Ohio, who is a non-pharmacist by trade and actually had a, a very sophisticated data analytics background working on Wall Street. And he had a, a very sideways way of, of coming to Dayton, Ohio. But very quickly, I learned that this was the smartest guy I had ever seen with numbers within our pharmacy world. No shot at pharmacists because I, I love them. But pharmacists are really good pharmacists. And they tend to be very bad business people or, common, more pro right? or I think more fairly, really bad at working with data and numbers. and. Uh, especially when you combine that with the complicated nature of the business of pharmacy. So Eric brought in a fresh set of eyes and a sophistication around data analytics that I had never seen before. And so Eric and I started to figure out, because his pharmacies were really impacted by these massive cuts within the Medicaid managed care program to the point where he was on the brink of having to basically close the entire operation. 
So we started trying to find ways to tell stories about what might be happening. We were very fortunate in that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, had two particular data files that were really necessary and essential to our unraveling what happened in Ohio. The first was National Average Drug Acquisition Cost, or NADAC, which is a survey benchmark conducted by CMS, well, conducted by Myers and Stouffer, a CPA firm on behalf of CMS, where they ask all retail pharmacies, they say, what did you pay to put the drugs on the shelf? So they send that, to, that survey out to 2,000 pharmacies every month. About 400 to 600 participate in that survey every month. And with that, they create the NADAC benchmark, which is imperfect and has limitations, but at least gives us a directional idea of the actual cost of medicines. The other data file that we found was the state drug utilization data, which is ultimately a file sent by every Medicaid program across the country back to CMS for the purposes of tracking the Medicaid drug rebate program. Well, within that data file, every state is reporting a quarter-by-quarter, drug-by-drug breakdown of what they paid for all their medicines in the Medicaid program. So with that, you have two ends of of a transaction conceptually. You have NADAC representing the cost of the drug, and you have the state drug utilization data, which is representing what states are being charged for those medicines. It was very complicated. Trust me, it's not like a simple Excel combine, but we ended up finding a way to stitch those things together. And voila, we saw an opening alligator mouth over time. The cost of the medicines were dropping, but the cost of the state to the state of Ohio and other states across the country were either flat or growing. So very long story short, we ended up bringing all that data to the Columbus Dispatch after we felt the state of Ohio wasn't taking our findings seriously. And we also brought it to Bloomberg News out in New York. They poked and prodded us and and basically sharpened the steel. And we found that we were really onto something. And so we decided to take all of that data and publish it for free after the state of Ohio decided to conduct their own audit to verify essentially what we found. In our napkin math, we approximated that PBMs were engaging in a practice called spread pricing, where they pay pharmacies low, they bill the plan sponsor, in this case, the state high, and they pocket the non-transparent disconnect. Well, our napkin math approximated to be about $220 million in a single year of our Medicaid managed care program. Uh, It ended up being $245 million. And so we were kind of awestruck by that. We said, okay, we're going to take all this data, not just for Ohio, but every state across the country and give it away for free. The idea was is that, look, there's a lot of money being made on prescription drugs, regardless of where it's going. The idea that a state Medicaid program with a lot more resources and transparency at its fingertips than your common employer or plan sponsor, the fact that they had no idea that something as simple as spread pricing could occur, I mean, they they in their mind, it was $0, and it ended up being $245 million in just a, a single year. And so we said, you know, we threw on, I threw on my journalist cap and said, this is a big story and let's start leveraging this data for a better good, right? Let's start showing people how the drug supply chain works, where the money is going and how incentives are driving behavior. It started by trying to give away this data and help folks figure out how spread pricing was impacting their states, but it quickly snowballed into a greater cause 
of saying, let's take all publicly available data. And if it's not publicly available data, what if we get proprietary data and perform derivative works that protect the proprietary nature of some data sets, but do whatever we can to give away drug pricing data for free such that the public can have a better understanding of how the system works, such that lawmakers and media can have shortcuts to have a better understanding of how the system works. But to really try to minimize what I would just call the uh, the hard on-ramp into the drug pricing world, because the more complicated it becomes, the more inaccessible it is, the more unlikely it is that reporters and lawmakers and investigators go down this rabbit hole because it's a very inefficient process. That's amazing. That's an amazing story. I'm so happy that you got distracted from organic chemistry. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't going to end well for me anyway, trust me. (laughs) No, it's amazing. It's it's interesting on a on a macro level that it was really the spread, you know, that everybody talks about, even at the pharmacy level, that you were able to discover at the major payer level, the state level. Because it's, you know, it's created a, a domino effect around the country that, you know, every time you open a, an app on a news news channel, you see another state has figured it out and sued somebody and trying to get the PBMs to return some of those funds that they've sort of stole. So I, I think what, what you might be saying, Antonio, is that PBMs might be in it a little bit for themselves. I'm just going to go <laughs> on a limb here. That that you know, their focus is is not really about patient care or about what's in the best interest of our country. We all know the stats where PBMs were doing two million or whatever in DIR fees back in 2010, and now that's in the multiple billions and billions of of dollars of the past 10 years. And this is they, they've flown under the radar, if you will, for everyone outside of of pharmacy. Can I ask, from your opinion, from your research and knowledge? How did we get here as pharmacists in, in, in the industry that's been focused on patient care, but obviously had to make a profit to, to do what we do? And PBMs are taking so much of that profit as the middleman. How do you believe that we got here as an industry? Well, let's say greed has been the greatest motivator, you know, in dating all the way back to the creation of the first medicines. And greed, I don't, I don't even mean to say it in a negative context, but you know, let's let's just be totally honest. Like in the and and I realize a lot of your members and constituents are going to be more on the long-term care side, but you know this will be applicable. So, how do we typically refer to pharmacies in the old school sense? Right, we talk about them as retail pharmacies. That was you know the kind of the 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 original house with which pharmacists lived under. And so, what were retail pharmacies? Well. We think of them as pharmacies, but let's focus on the first part of that, which is retail. And what do we know about retail? Retail is when we walk into a a clothing store or a grocery store and we buy something with our wallets or our purses. And so in retail transactions, even today, we're dealing with companies that are ultimately publicly traded often. And even if they're not, let's just trust that their incentives are to make more money and hopefully make more money the next quarter relative to this quarter. And that's not universal. Certainly independent proprietors who aren't publicly traded have greater flexibility. And certainly in the pharmacy context, we are talking about professionals who have ethical obligations to the care of patients. But let's just take all of that to the side and let's be really unfair. And let's say all business is motivated by money. Well, 
The reason that Kroger or Giant Eagle or fill-in-the-blank grocery store doesn't charge us $100 for a gallon of milk is because we as consumers won't stand for it. We won't buy that gallon of milk for $100. We will either go to a different grocery store that's giving us a better price, or if milk is just unilaterally too expensive, we will forego milk altogether and we will opt for apple juice, orange juice, almond milk, whatever that is, right? So our power as consumers is putting pressure on retailers to provide goods and services at a reasonable price. That grocery store is obviously not milking the cow. So there's an entire distribution channel that goes all the way before that milk becomes a gallon sitting in the refrigerator at your grocery store. So at the end of the day, the Kroger and Giant Eagle want to make sure that whatever they're putting in that refrigerator reflects the incentives of a consumer willing to buy it. And that has a trickle-down effect to the wholesaler with which they're buying it from, the farm with which it's milking the cow, and so on and so on. Our power as consumers historically is making sure that prices for anything end up being reasonable. Back to the medicine world and pharmacy, over time, pharmacies realized that they could take some liberties with prices. Wholesalers realized that they could take some liberty with prices. And manufacturers especially started to realize that they could take greater liberties with prices since they were making medicines that were literally life or death for patients. So understandably so, we started to say, man, maybe we, maybe it's not okay if a patient can't afford their medicine. And so that brought about drug coverage. It started with the United Auto Workers back in the 60s. They had the benefits card. And all of a sudden, that was the first instance where we started buying medicines with other people's money. And over time, as our wallets and purses, even though they are the initiation point of where the money it comes from, the money that flows into the drug channel ultimately now originates at the PBM level from a product perspective. So as a result, PBMs were brought in to facilitate that transaction. But over time, we said to the PBM, well, might you be interested in negotiating this transaction on our behalf? And so conceptually, let's just pretend that drug makers and wholesalers and pharmacies combined started to take liberties with the prices of medicines. PBMs were brought in to act as a helpful and necessary friction against one end of the drug supply chain that left to its own devices would love to charge as much as the market would bear on life-saving medicines, which they, that's a pretty good mandate for them. So PBMs were, I would argue, started off in a very, very aligned way, but things started to change. PBMs started opening their own mail order pharmacies. PBMs got exemptions to the federal anti-kickback statute that allowed them to be compensated by drug makers in exchange for preferential treatment and coverage decisions. PBMs started opening their own specialty pharmacies, retail pharmacies, long-term care pharmacies. Today, they're actually acquiring physician practices, and they're also publicly traded, which means that the very same issue that we ran into with the other layers of the drug supply chain, we now have with these intermediaries as well. PBMs are by no means the only evil within the marketplace, and evil is probably a harsh word, but recognize that the entire drug distribution channel lives to make more money, and PBMs were supposed to counteract that incentive, but instead have become another mouth to feed and have poured gasoline on the very fire that they were hired to control. That's a great example, yeah. a great analogy of, of what's going on. So recently, 
well, since the since the election in November, the Republicans have taken over the, the House of Representatives and a lot of the activity, the first part of this cycle has been on PBMs. They've had a, a number of hearings. ASCP had their fly-in, congressional fly-in, and we were able to to speak to Buddy Carter, who as a pharmacist in Congress is one of the leaders of looking at this issue at a federal level. And he had this to say about you know, where he sees this issue going. And Antonio, from your perspective, because this is such a hot topic, what do you see that the federal government can actually do? You've obviously fought it at a grassroots level. You've exposed it. A lot of states, particularly Ohio, have been very aggressive, at least from the perspectives of their Medicaid departments of correcting these issues. But where does it go from here? What can we do federally? Where do we really think this is going to land? Well, it's a really interesting time, right? Because, you know, five years ago, most members of Congress couldn't spell PBM. And now you have almost every major committee of jurisdiction that has basically said it's PBM time. So what a time to be alive if you've been waiting for market or some sort of market realignment. We have their attention, right? Whether it's through our public education efforts that we do at at 46 Brooklyn or what we do on our consulting side through Three Axis Advisors, one of the things that we do through our consulting work is working with state attorney generals, state Medicaid fraud control units, state Medicaid programs, state auditors, employers, et cetera. One of the things that we've seen as one of the biggest barriers to realigning marketplace incentives is PBM's unwillingness to share an itemized receipt for the supposed value that they're creating for their clients. We would not have been able to uncover the spread scam in Ohio and other states if not afforded the ability to have real benchmarks like NADAC or real accounting, even if I would prefer for greater granularity in some of these data sets, NADAC and state drug utilization data provides a directional opportunity to diagnose where a growing fat was building within the drug transaction. So when I look at how we can eliminate some of these problems and not just look at spread pricing, one of the things that we're that we're looking at today is how PBMs are engaging in massive amounts of patient steering. Are they engaging in steering because there's 10 bucks to be made? Absolutely not. They're engaging in steering because they are both the price setter and the price taker thanks to vertical integration. So at the PBM level, they get to set the reimbursement rates for particular transactions, but then within the pharmacies they own, they can obviously benefit from the setting of those reimbursement rates. So what we see in real data from both Medicaid programs, Medicare programs, and within the commercial sector is that PBMs are really good at underpaying for medicines a lot. However, there's a small sliver of claims where they are conveniently asleep at the wheel. And all of a sudden, instead of paying what is usually around five, 10, $15 in margin per prescription, they're paying thousands of dollars in margin per prescription for non-complex drugs that are sitting right next to the cheap drugs and giving thousands of dollars in payments for those medicines. Well, what are those medicines? They're typically designated as specialty drugs, and they have the have a tremendous amount of latitude to force or either nudge or incent a patient to get those medicines filled within the pharmacies they own. We cannot diagnose those problems and those poor incentives and conflicts if we don't have a proper accounting for what we bought and where we bought it from. So 
One of the things that I think is one of the greatest opportunities from a congressional perspective, it's seemingly so simple, right? But what's the joke at a CBS pharmacy, right? You walk in and you buy a stick of gum at the front end of the store and you get a receipt that's a mile long. You spend a billion dollars in drug spend with them and they're going to fight over giving you an itemized receipt over what they what they did for you. To me, transparency has become the great equalizer in this marketplace. And what I know there's a lot of proposals that seek to prohibit spread pricing and effective rate clawbacks. There's push for moving to NADAC or benchmark-based pricing models. There's movement for trying to fix DIR. I know that they, you know, quote, move DIR to point of sale, but there's still massive problems with how DIR is being conducted today. There's proposals to share rebates at point of sale. There's push to limit the incentives of steering. And all of these things can be beneficial to realign the incentives of the marketplace and make PBMs you know, truly act in a more fiduciary-like role. But they still miss, I think, the underlying issue is that the PBMs have vertically integrated to the point where you can't just impact them at the PBM level anymore. And you can't necessarily change the fact that they're publicly traded companies that make money through arbitrage and sleight of hand anymore. So really, you have to get back to this original foundational issue, which is demanding an itemized accounting for what they're doing and how they're doing it. To me, that's the best opportunity for reform. So I sat through part of a hearing on this, and I was actually encouraged by the fact that this is not a partisan issue. This is a bipartisan issue. The Democrats were as aggressive as the Republicans and vice versa in their questioning and arguably attacking of the issue. But, you know, it's hard to put faith in Congress for just about anything. So do we really think we can get there? And I I don't want to put you on the spot, but, you know, put your prognosticator hat on. Where do we see this maybe in a year after these hearings are through and different legislation is proposed? Where do you think this can go? Because at the end of the day, We've also funded the PBMs for so long that they're extraordinarily wealthy and they're going to fight like crazy. Yeah. And as we saw just this past week, this isn't just PBMs fighting anymore. It's now the health plans that are now involved in the fight since they are one in the same. Right. So it's not just going after PBMs. We're going after large, vertically integrated healthcare enterprises that are Fortune 15 companies at this point and have a ton to lose. They're going to fight with everything they've got. Well, I'm optimistic that lawmakers are serious about going after going after PBMs. I am a little bit pessimistic that they have a full understanding of, of the issues well enough to be successful in what their quest is. Look, when we're watching these PBM hearings and saying, wow, I can't believe they're devoting so much time to it. The truth is they're spending a lot of time on the other side, working on other issues that are getting far more airplay in circles that matter from a political perspective. So I am a little pessimistic that in in the aggregate, Congress has the degree of sophistication to cut through the noise. Because just as an example, at the state level, what, what we always used to see, there'd be some PBM reform, whether it be substantive or not, And PBMs would come back and say, oh, my God, it's going to raise costs by billions of dollars and never really have to provide a proper accounting for how they're crunching those numbers. But it would be enough for lawmakers ultimately bend their spine and then give in on an issue or make concessions that make a a bill essentially worthless. It wouldn't surprise me if that were to happen within Congress as well. 
The thing that makes me optimistic, though, are other opportunities in conjunction with what Congress is doing. You have the Federal Trade Commission that is still in the midst of their colonoscopy of the industry. And then you also have Department of Justice that's been looking at this. You have state attorney generals who have been working on this and state auditors. You have employers like the Purchasers Business Group on Health and the ERISA Industry Committee and other local business coalitions that have been totally absent from these discussions in the past. And then you also have market disruptors that are getting a lot more eyeballs than they ever have, whether that be PBMs like Capital Rx, Samsana Rx, or disruptors like Mark Cuban's Cost Plus Drug Company. All of those things that, again, five years ago, are things that aren't really on the table as opportunities for market realignment. So if you're asking me, am I optimistic about Congress relative to the past? Yes. But in general, no. Combined with everything else that's an opportunity for disruption, yes, I am optimistic that within the next year, we're seeing significant pressures that help realign this marketplace. So with that said, let's talk about, you mentioned how we had some changes with the DIR fees, and that's going to be now point of sale. But if you you kind of lay that out and look at that, in January 1st, 2024 here, in just a few months, pharmacies are going to have to pay for two things. First of all, they're probably going to get lower reimbursement because my guess is BBM is not going to take less money. So they're going to lower reimbursement during that first quarter. But they're also going to have to pay for the Q4 DIR fee. So, so pharmacies are going to get double hit for at least one to two quarters. So what's your advice for pharmacies now, knowing that we're still seven, eight months away from this, knowing that we're probably, even if Congress does make any decision in 2023, it's probably not going to go in, in effect in, for a year or two. But this is something that pharmacies are going to have to deal with come January 1st, and they're going to have that double whammy. Without question. And, and, and in the meantime, we're seeing all these effective rate reconciliations and clawbacks that are hitting in the commercial sector. And those amounts are growing as well over time. Look, January 1 is a crossroads without question. My advice to pharmacies is that you need to make sure that you are stockpiling cash as best you can. Don't, don't go liberal on the Christmas bonuses, unfortunately, for your staff. You know, make sure that you're not necessarily making renovations to the pharmacy or in making major investments towards the end of this year unless you feel like you've properly accommodated for the surprise bill that you're going to get on January 1 and, 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 the, and the months that are going to be thereafter. Remember, your wholesalers still expect that you're going to pay your bills on time. Remember that your staff is going to expect that you still pay them what they're being paid at least today. You need to prepare as if you're going to get a massive shock and not necessarily the typical cash on hand in order to handle that. So financial planning is a huge issue as we run into the end of the year and into 2024. Well, kind of along those lines, Antonio, just sort of coming to the end of this, this has been a fantastic dive into the issue. What else can pharmacists do? You know, our members want to help. They don't want you to stand alone as a soldier for us. What else can they do to influence this, whether that's talking to their politicians or or other activities? What can they do? You know, first and foremost, you know, obviously I'm on an association podcast here, but I can't understate this enough. 
associations aren't supported enough, whether that be the national or a state level, or hell, even a local level. Associations are your best mechanism to make sure that you have your ear to the ground, and ultimately you have somebody that's working on your behalf to ensure that these things are being done, what need to be done at the federal level. That's not just pharmacy associations, really whatever it is that you find to be of importance, it is really, really crucial to make the right investments to support the things that you ultimately rely upon for change in this world. Beyond that, pharmacists, I think, historically have done a really bad job communicating their value proposition to the patient and the overall healthcare delivery system. That's the fault of all of us, associations and individual pharmacists alike. In general, I've always called pharmacists the Rodney Dangerfield of healthcare. It's absolutely insane to me that pharmacists today in 2023, after everything that has happened with the pandemic and the evolution of this profession, the fact that they are not recognized providers within CMS code is an absolute tragedy, in my opinion. It's taken unbelievably too long to get even just the small wins at the state level to move the ball in that regard. But that's that lack of success is is multifaceted, right? But it ultimately comes back to a lack of understanding of the value proposition that pharmacists offer to the system. Always, always, always make sure that the things that you might view as kind of part of your daily work and not necessarily all that relevant from an external perspective, remember that your typical member of the public think that pharmacists just take pills out of one bottle, move them into another one and slap a label on it. That's obviously way, 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 way underselling the value of the profession. But I think that the pharmacists need to do a better job communicating what it is that makes them unique and valuable within the healthcare delivery system. At which point, I think lawmakers and others look to pharmacists as something, A, worth protecting to a degree, but also investing in to a degree. Lastly, the thing that I would say is pharmacists in general, and I'm being unfair because I know some really loud and loud and obnoxious pharmacists in a good way, <laughs> but pharmacists in general are introverted and quiet. And I think pharmacists are also have been historically, especially in the PBM conversation, a little bit fearful of retaliation and things from speaking out. I'll refer you back to your professional charges as pharmacists to you know, ultimately stand for the well-being of the patient. And if there are bad things happening in this in the business of pharmacy, whether that be PBMs, insurance companies, or hell, even your own pharmacy and the logo that you work underneath, it is really important to speak out about things that ultimately are impacting the patient in a negative way. The time for complacency and quietness has long passed, and pharmacy is at a really, really important, critical juncture for change. And the last thing that you would want is for quietness and timidness to allow others to dictate change for you. And so my my counsel to pharmacists is that, you know, if you see things that are wrong within your profession, make sure that you are calling them out and elevating those issues to people who can ultimately do things about them. That's awesome. Well, thanks, Antonio. I certainly appreciate you being on the show. It is extraordinarily important for our profession, for our members. I think you exude, and again, I go back to your your path, your your family history. You just exude this profession and, and are such a protector. And you are assertive and you are representative of what we all kind of need to step yeah. up and be a little bit more of because you are out, out front fighting this issue and, and really exposing it. And we appreciate that probably more than you know. So thank you so much for being on and appreciate the work that you do at Axis 3 Advisors and at 46 Brooklyn and, and yeah. everything. Yeah. And Antonio, I like this quote from Albert Einstein that says, we can't solve problems by using the same kind of thinking we used when we created them. 
And you and 46 Brooklyn decided we're not going to keep on laying down and, and letting these problems happen. We're going to do something about them. We're going to change the way we're thinking. And you took a completely different approach. And because of that, I believe that we do have a lot of attention now on Capitol Hill. And, and I certainly see some light at the, at the end of the tunnel. So thank you for your, your lifelong commitment to making this change and for all pharmacists and, and, and pharmacies and their patients they serve. What you've been doing is, is really been positive for us, and I appreciate it. Hey, look, I, I promise I don't do it out of altruism. There is part of this that makes me very happy when I get to wake up and say, how can we try and make this system better? And there's a little bit of a bullying the bully thing that I do like about this is that, look, at the end of the day, there are a lot of companies who want to take advantage and make money in the middle of a transaction that we need in order to stay alive as humans. And I believe we we deserve to know where those dollars are going and make sure they're well invested. So yeah, there's a lot of money in medicine. I wanna make sure that ultimately that money is being well spent. So trust me, it's a lot of fun every day. That's awesome. Well, thanks so much. And thanks everybody for listening. We'll be back with a new podcast uh, next week and uh, we'll see you next time. 